It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. nerds happy new year and welcome to episode 510 of the professional book nerds podcast presented by overdrive this is adam all by myself for this one i hope you had a good new year's eve and a good whatever holiday you choose to celebrate if you choose to celebrate uh hanukkah kwanzaa christmas um winter solstice that really fun icelandic holiday where they do the whole book thing where they just spend all day reading um, I do not know how to pronounce it, but it's like Jalakoflablu. Got that wrong. Probably just shouldn't have said it. But it's the Yule Book Flood. Hope you did one of those things or none of those things, but whatever you did, I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, really excited to usher in the new year with a book that I think people are going to be talking about all year long. Today's episode is an interview I did with debut author, debut author? Debut author Ashley Audrain who wrote The Push. Uh, this book is, I genuinely think, going to be all over the place this year. Um, it gives me really, really big, uh, sharp objects vibes, kind of darling rose gold vibes a little bit. There's some Shirley Jackson-ness mixed in here. Uh, it's so good. I could not put it down. Uh Ashley and I talked for a, a long time about kind of where this book came to be and uh, motherhood and, you know, where the idea for the book came from. Uh, she is a mother herself of a couple of kids, and this book is all about um, a, a, a mother who is struggling with trying to figure out if there's something wrong with her daughter or if it's entirely in her head, but also you get this um, back and forth with her uh, childhood when her mother wasn't uh, the best person in the world as well. So she's wondering if it's like a a, a trait about the women in her family or, or what's going on. Just a phenomenal book. And it was, it was a really great conversation too. Ashley uh, was in the publishing industry um, on the publicity side for a number of years before she became an author. And so she's really familiar with the process. So we talked a lot about like events and uh, just like the different things and the different way that she's experiencing going through being a debut author versus, you know, when it was her job to kind of <laughs> wrangle other authors and, and help keep all of their heads straight. So it's just a really great conversation. Ashley's just a really wonderful person. I'm glad I got a chance to meet her and spend some time with her uh, via Zoom, of course. So um, that is what this episode is all about. Um, if you missed our last couple of episodes, we shared our best books of 2020. We shared our big January preview episode, which we always do. Um, and then also recently, we unveiled our 2021 reading challenge. So you can go back and listen to those. You can also find our 2021 reading challenge template uh, at professionalbooknerds.com if you want to join in and have some fun with us all year long. Uh, we'll, of course, do episodes about those to give you guys some some helpful tips. But those are all out there. Um, so join in the fun and have a, a good time with all that. You can always, of course, find us on Twitter and Instagram, at ProBookNerds, or you can email us at ProfessionalBookNerds at Overdrive.com. If you haven't yet, if you want to leave us a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts, I know it's tedious to, to be asked that all the time, but it really does help us, you know, find more bookish people to kind of join our little community here. So, Okay. No more commercials for me. I'm not going to wait around any longer. I'm going to let you get to this conversation that I had with Ashley Audrain, author of The Push on the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Um, I will say I, I've been joking with my siblings about um, I don't think anyone's going to watch like the ball drop on the 31st this year and be like, well, this is going to be my year. Like, I don't think anyone's going into 2021 <laughs> being like, this is the year we're doing it. So that's true. Um, true. All right, let, let's get to your book. So like I, like I said, I'll, I'll just kind of have you start by introducing your book because the push is 
phenomenal and I'm, I'm obsessed with it. So I will let you, the author, introduce it because I definitely want to give too much away. Oh, thank you. Um, thank you for those kind words. And yes, yeah. this, is, this is fun to be here for sure. Um, yeah, so The Push is a book about a woman named Blythe Connor. And she comes from a history of women who have struggled greatly with motherhood. And she's determined that she's going to have a very different experience as a mother, mm-hmm. um, you know, that she's going to be sort of the warm, present, caring mother that she didn't have. Um, so she and her husband have a baby girl, Violet. Um, and at first, you know, she sort of has nights that a lot of us mothers can relate to sort of sleepless, exhausting, um, you know, nights and days. Um, but soon she starts to realize that there's something wrong with her daughter, that she feels that um, Violet is not like the other children her age or the other babies. Um, she's aloof and detached and quite an angry girl. Um, and as she, you know, goes to preschool and starts to interact with other kids, she feels the behavior is actually quite malicious. And so the problem, of course, is that her husband, Fox, cannot see what what she sees. He thinks this is very much, you know, um, maternal anxiety that she's always carried and it's all sort of in her head. Um, So they have a second baby and she finds a connection with him that she had always hoped to have um, until something in the family goes terribly wrong and the family unravels from there. So that's the, that's the summary without giving yeah. anything away. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, that was a very good job. I'm always so hesitant in books like yours where it feels like every chapter is kind of peeling back more of the story. And so I'm always very thankful for, for you, the author, for introducing it. Um, I have to imagine, well, first off, being a mother yourself and writing this type of a book, um, are there feelings that you're going through that I have to imagine, like, do you think you could have written this book before you had children? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't think so. I don't think Mm. I could have written this book before I had kids. Um, And I, you know, it's funny. It's like, I feel I've loved writing always. Like I've always had something, you know, I was working on or loved writing courses at nights and on weekends and that sort of thing. And um had always kind of wanted to write a novel and sort of toyed with that and what it would be. Um, but it wasn't until um, I had my son that I really felt very, like it almost felt like urgent that I sort mm-hmm. of r- write this book and write this story. It was really felt very vivid in me. Um, so I really don't think I could have written this book without having gone through the experience of motherhood myself. Although I was always very fascinated by mothers and by what that experience was like. So I think I, yeah, I I can't see how I would ever, I don't even think that, you know, the heart of the story would have come to me before. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I started writing when he was like six months old. And so, um, and obviously, you know, in the book life, you know, there's a good portion of the book that kind of covers sort of new motherhood, although it's not yeah. all about that. And, um, and so, you know, my experience was very different <laughs> than Blythe, thankfully. <laughs> um, and my son was nothing like, um, you know, the, the child that I was writing about, but, um, you know, there's definitely, a, there, there are definitely sort of reflections of the experience that, you know, I was having as a mother on the page. Um, mm-hmm. And I've thankfully been, been very grateful to kind of hear from readers, early readers who are mothers themselves, who have said like they saw so much of themselves in their own mm-hmm. experience in this book. So that, um, that makes me very happy that that came through. Although, <laughs> although the book is of course fiction. <laughs> yeah. I, I was just going to say, I, I wonder if like internally, cause I know your kids are a little bit younger at the moment, right? They're- they are, yeah. They're right now. They're just turned three and five. So, okay. Yeah. So are you, are you ever nervous about them reading this when they get older and being like, "Hey, mom, was this about us?" <laughs> Definitely. It's funny. Somebody. Well, first of all, it's funny because I. I mean, maybe not funny, but I. The book never. I mean, I know the book is dark. Um, there are some dark parts of the book, but I. It didn't feel that dark to me. I think because I was. It was so. I was you know, writing up for so long and I was so in it. Um, and it's funny, like even my husband who had read the book, you know, in drafts and whatever along the way, when the book kind of went out into the world and to agents and was sort of happening and everyone kept saying how dark it was and somebody mm-hmm. had, you know, compared it to kind of this horror. And my husband was like, like, really? Like, is that like, we couldn't, we couldn't wrap our heads around how dark people thought it was, which was yeah. now I can sort of see that that was a bit, you know, mm-hmm. of course it's dark, but yeah. So, but when I think about my kids, um, reading it one day, um, yeah, it's funny that the, the cover, um, you know, obviously, you know, with books with different editions in different markets have different covers and the cover, um, in Canada 
where I live, I'm in Toronto, is um, a playground, has a playground on the front. It's like a, a scene of a park from, from a park. Um, and so when that edition sort of arrived a couple of weeks ago um, and they saw it for the first time, they were like, you know, thought it was a nice happy book about, about a playground, which is a place they love. And so, yeah, I'll have to do some managing of expectations. Yeah. <laughs> on um and at once they want to kind of know what it's about but i'm sort of hoping because they're so young mm -hmm. that you know this book and any other book that i write are just sort of like you know just in the background of our lives like they mm -hmm. just sort of say it's just something mom wrote a long time ago and it, it yeah. won't feel like it has any sort of significance that's what i'm, yeah. that's what I'm hoping <laughs> oh that's so funny well and i will say i for me anyway i think part of the kind of quote-unquote darkness of like of the feel is I think it's it's twofold. One, the way the structure that you have this written, it's almost like voyeuristic, which is interesting because it, it, the the book opens with a scene where you know the the main character, the mother Blythe, is kind of like looking in on a a Christmas um, that's going on, and then it starts sort of telling her story. And I, I think even with the fact that we're going, you have like multiple timelines and you're kind of telling the story of her family and the women of her family. It still feels like she is looking in, like kind of telling it over our shoulder. And so I think there's that like creeping sense of, you know, even if you're in your own home, you don't feel safe, even though the, it's the narrator who is the one who's looking in at us. Does that, does that make sense? My, or am I projecting? <laughs> No, that to that totally makes sense. Yeah, and it, yeah, it's interesting that um, I sort of played with the that voice of her a little bit, like in earlier drafts, even just um, you know, because because you write it sort of opens where she's um, you know looking in on this family that is no longer her family, and she's mm -hmm. you know on the road and it's nighttime and the house you know the lights are on. I think we all kind of there's a part of me that loves that when you're so, when it's dark out and you can sort of catch oh, yeah. a glimpse of you know a life happening inside a house with the curtains yeah. open or the lights on. But so she has that experience, and I think that that does kind of hopefully sort of set the tone for the rest of the book, and that you're you are the the book is written um, with this you know, in her voice, but it's sort of directed at her husband. It's directed mm -hmm. at you. And so you sort of read, it's almost like you're reading the story that she is telling to you as the reader, um, but she's speaking to her husband. And so, yeah, I think that does sort of give it just a different kind of vibe. And you do, there, there is a creepiness to that because there's something so intimate about that kind of voice. Like mm -hmm. you feel like you are, hopefully you feel like you are, you know, right smack dab in the middle of that relationship in a way. Yeah. Um, but I think it also, my hope is that it also sort of lended some ambiguity to her voice as well in a sense that, um, you know, and she says this at the beginning of the book, but this is very much, you know, her version mm -hmm. of what her life has been like or what, you know, their marriage has been like. Well, and it's, it's interesting because I, and I haven't seen anyone else to say this about it. So either I'm completely off base or I'm the first one, I'm going to probably go with the, the former, but it <laughs> feels very like Shirley Jackson to me where because we're seeing this through you know Bly's point of view the whole time and there's all these kind of creeping questions that start coming into her mind about is her baby normal or is it just in her head and like the moments that happen to her with baby Violet are only when she's around and so you start to do this thing where it's like well am, is this an unreliable narrator or am I is it what's going on and I think forcing that perspective from only I, you know I, I think there's obviously you know countless ways to tell a story but I think when you only use this kind of like one perspective it it keeps the mystery alive from the rest of it was that something that you were playing with like the whole time or did you always know you wanted it to be through this one this one lens yeah um yeah thank you for that observation it's a it's it's I did I'm trying to think back to her, it's funny though. She always did have that. I was always writing from that perspective. I, when I, even in the very first draft, um, it was always that you, you know, addressed in that you way, mm -hmm. um, that she was addressing to somebody. And it was just, I didn't really see it any other way. It was just kind of the voice and the character that came to me. Mm -hmm. Um, although I think that, and, and I do hope that, that, that the reader does sort of feel or realize as they go on that, yeah, they are only ever seeing anything through, through her perspective. It's such a tight perspective that you get from her, um, which I think hopefully makes the reader question, as you said, like sort of, well, what, like, what was, how did, how would other people view this exact, you know, scenario? Um, and there's some kind of like hints about that along the way, but um, yeah, so that was that I did, I, 
I didn't set out to make her an unreliable narrator in any, that wasn't an intention at all. Mm -hmm. But I think that that sort of was revealed to me over time that I, when I, it's funny, so much of this book sort of really came to me in revision. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I think, I think again, that sort of that intention of her being so unreliable was was not there at at first, but Mm -hmm. but that you voice was that type perspective was always there. Yeah. yeah, it's funny how much kind of comes out in those revisions and you sort mm-hmm. of sort of peel the layers off and kind of start to, um, yeah, start to kind of get more of those nuances as kind of you go. Yeah, I am also curious about if if there, if you found it challenging to balance the the obviously like the creeping unknowing strangeness that's going on in the story with also like the real genuine and real and powerful feelings of what Blythe is going through being a first-time mother and the expectations of that and like working while and like you said you kind of started writing this while your son is six months old that's very that's a very integral part early on in the, in the the story as well um how important was it for you to not only create a a story that feels very like you know like Jillian Flynn, like suspenseful and like hold your breath, but also really like I, I'm obviously a, I'm a, I'm a male and I do not have kids. So I have no concept of motherhood, but you put in these visceral understandings of what it felt like to be here. Like how important was balancing those two things for you? And was it challenging? Yeah, that's such a good question. Um, it's funny because I guess, yeah. So when I, when I started writing the, the book at the very beginning, it was, I did not think about those suspenseful elements. I didn't really, I wasn't really comparing it or trying to have it be a certain way. I really just wanted to write about motherhood, about, you know, the the sort of those tapping into those fears and anxieties and kind of taking a look at, um, you know, that like we all as mothers have, you know, fears and anxieties about what motherhood is like and who our kids are. And I wanted to just let that ball role until it kind of carried away into what the story was. Um, And I wasn't really that conscious of sort of like, was this going to be emotional suspense? Was it going to be a thriller? Like, was it going to have these other elements? But, but as I sort of got, had been writing for a while and I realized what I had, you know, was a novel and like could work. Then I started getting that voice in my head through the revisions that kind of said like, well, you know, like if you want it to be commercial, you know, it should feel this way. Or if you want it to like, then I sort of wanted, there was something in me that sort of wanted to then put it in a category and make it, you know, fit like how I knew those bo- the books that sold on the books that worked well, like, mm-hmm. you know, at the time, um, this is like, you know, I'm trying to think of when I started writing it, 2015, you know, that was like, you know, Gone Girl and Girl on a Train had just come yeah. out, like it was around that time. And so, yeah, I think then I, I remember kind of going back and kind of working it through, trying to think about it more with that lens, like trying to like, what's the hook? What's the, uh, you know, like to your point, like unreliable narrator, I started trying to make it a little more um, like those books. And what I realized was that did not work. <laughs> that was not mm-hmm. when I was trying to make it something, it was not yeah. working. And I feel like in that process, I had toned down the really emotional, visceral motherhood stuff. And mm-hmm. I was trying, I was so focused on like plot and twists and, you know, all these other things. And at that, and, and, but I like plowed through that, you know, with that kind of being my intention of those revisions. And I remember I had showed it to my husband who, you know, is not like a big reader of that kind of genre. So didn't kind of came to it with like no, you know, expectation. Mm-hmm. And he had said to me, I, I, I was, you know, thought it was a pretty good draft and he read it and you know, I asked him for feedback and he gave me a lot of nice feedback up front. Like we do. And then it said to me, you know what, this doesn't actually feel like the book that you kept talking about writing. This doesn't mm-hmm. really feel like what you've been talking about is this story of motherhood, this journey of motherhood and these expectations and what it's really like for this woman. And so much of that has been like muted to, mm-hmm. to try to make room for these other characters and other storylines. And his advice to me, which was, you know, very hard to hear and a tough pill to swallow was like, go back and like get rid of all that other stuff you've been trying to add and just focus on that like the heartbeat of the story like the underlying emotional like real stuff mm-hmm. about motherhood and so I was pregnant at the time with my second child and I was like oh god like it was just not the time to tell me that <laughs> but I, 
<laughs> but eventually I like sucked it up and I was like, okay, I've got to like make this. And so when I went back and took a whole nother sweep at the book, I ended up, you know, deleting 75% of all that other stuff. And mm -hmm. what I had left was, you know, exactly the parts that he felt were working and that I knew in my heart were working. And I just focused on that and rewrote the book. And then that yeah. became the push. And so I feel like it was a good lesson in like, I started somewhere that felt very, you know, genuine, like it was on the right path. I tried to make it something it wasn't. It mm -hmm. wasn't true to what I really wanted to write. And when I, and then, you know, and then when I really focused again on what I, the book I really wanted to write, um, you know, it became the book that worked. So um, that's kind of a long answer to your question. No, <laughs> but the point, the point is that, you know, there, it, it is hard to find that balance. And, mm -hmm. but, but ultimately I feel like if you really just focus on what you want to write, yeah. um, the book will come, you know. Well, first off, you have a, a ludicrously brave husband. <laughs> I just like can't imagine the world being like, my pregnant wife is working so hard in the story. <laughs> Let me tell her what's not working. Like that's amazing. Ruthless. It was just yeah. ruthless. I know. It, it turned out I have to hand it to him now because he didn't know what he was talking about. But it was it wasn't the wasn't the yeah, it wasn't the best point in our marriage. I was <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I will say, so this this made me think, um, a couple years ago, I interviewed um, Greer Hendricks and Sarah Pekinen at the, the, together at the same time. I think it was for An Anonymous Girl, which is a book that is kind of in this same genre. Um, and they told me that they did a lot of like market research and basically because ah. they've been writing separately for a while and they knew like they, they both knew that as established writers, they could write a novel but they were like, we want to write a novel that we know this is like makes them sound like pompous, but they weren't saying it like this. Like we wanted to write a novel we knew would be a bestseller. And so they looked at the different things that sold and didn't sell. And they said, this is the route we're going to take our story. And so the reason I bring this up is because for people who might not know, you have a history, a background in publishing. So was it, yeah. I mean, I have to imagine it was like borderline impossible not to see this through like the publicity lens of like, will, what angle do I have to take? It had to be really hard. You're exactly right. And I think that, I think that um, it's funny that, you know, having worked in publishing, I mean, I was publicity, did publicity at Penguin Canada for two years before I wrote this. And so, you know, that gave me insight into so many things that I think have helped in this journey for sure. Yeah. It also was, um, as somebody who wanted to write, it was an incredibly humbling experience <laughs> to be working in publishing with like, you know, these insanely talented writers and just feeling like, oh my God, like who, who am I to think I would ever be able to do this? So it was, yeah. that, it was, you know, a little, it was humbling in that way, but, um, you know, so but I do, I think you're right. I mean, especially because I was involved in the marketing of these books. Like I could not, then when it came time to writing my own book, like I couldn't just erase that part of what yeah. I knew kind of, you know, could work. And, and for, so, you know, for those couple of years, like I had really only been talking about books and thinking about books and reading books through that lens of like, mm -hmm. what, you know, what do people want to read? What will sell? What, what will the retailers like? Like what the yeah. trend is? Um, so yeah, it was kind of hard to quiet that, I think. And I, and I think that's probably why I had gone kind of reversed and kind of gone back to try to make it feel more like whatever yeah. I knew was working. Um, so yeah, I think, yeah, it's funny because I, I do think that that voice was hard to quiet um, and it didn't, it did, that voice did not do me any favors in this case. <laughs> well, yeah. It's, it's interesting. Um, a, a few weeks ago, I talked to um, P. Jelly Clark who wrote uh, Ring Shot, which is a novella. And he, I learned a lot from him about not only like he, novellas I now know are 40,000 words or less. And it's one of these things where like, sh same thing with like short stories, like most short stories that are marketed and successfully sold are like no more than 9,000 words or something, unless you're, you know, like Neil Gaiman and then people uh. would read a phone book that you wrote and called it a short story. Yeah. And it, it's like along those same lines where he told me, he was like, I wrote this but this story that I wanted to be ring shot, which is now like a award-winning novella. And he was like 41,000 words. And his publisher told him like, we think this is great, but if you don't cut a thousand words, they're going to consider this your first novel and it'll be your debut. And like, that's, that matters in the publishing world. And so he's like, Oh shoot. Okay. So I went back and did that. And it's like, I am there. There's so many things, at least in the publishing world where like, you have a leg up and understanding from people like I, I was it easier to not take criticism too seriously because I think a lot of times authors will hear like criticism from an editor or a publicist and it's like this is we're just trying to help you sell as many copies as possible we're not saying your version is bad 
Yes. I think you're absolutely right. That, um, that that's exactly it. It's like, I think that, you know, even working, obviously I'm wearing a very different hat now as a writer, but even working in publishing thickens your skin a bit because you, yeah. because you're right. You are kind of privy to these conversations where, I mean, you're sort I remember when I first started working in publishing being like, you just, I mean, it felt like such a privilege to be even be like at this table where like people mm-hmm. were talking about, you know, best-selling authors that you loved and kind of talking about their work that hadn't published yet and the strategy around publishing them and marketing them. Um, I loved those conversations, but I, I do. And I remember kind of thinking like, wow, like it is, an, I mean, there's so much, there's so much passion in publishing, but I was like, it's just a product at the end of the day Mm. for them. Like they have to treat it like a product. And of course, writers do not see their work that way. Many writers, some writers probably do, but like, you know, most writers, you don't, it's your, you know, you put your heart and soul into it and it's, you know, it's, you can be a little precious about it. And I Mm. think, yeah, that experience of working in publishing really put it all into perspective for me that, you know, they, you have a job to do as a writer you to write the best book you can mm-hmm. and they have a job to like sell it. <laughs> and and yeah. there's no publishing industry if they can't sell those books. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you have to really, yeah, I think, I think that that kind of, you know, thickened my skin in a sense that like, you know, I was a part of those conversations and I had to treat the books that way too. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. even now um, for sure, I, I think with the, you know, with criticisms or suggestions or whatever, I mean, I also know like even just reviews, which like my, you know, at this point we're talking about now the book's not quite out there yet so I haven't had to deal with this yet because yeah. publishing day did not happen but um you know I remember like I, I had you know worked with authors who some of them could care less about reviews because they'd sort of been seasoned and you know mm-hmm. had many books published and they didn't really care and then I had other authors who were debut authors who were like you know you j- it, it's devastated by you know <laughs> like like a review even if it you know but it was hard for me to be like well you know it doesn't like it, it's okay. This it doesn't mm-hmm. don't put so much importance in this review kind of thing. So, um, you know, yeah, lots. I, I look. I think back to the advice that I would give my authors who would get like panicked about yeah. <laughs> stuff about like the negative stuff, and I'll have to. I'll have to. Who knows how that'll feel now being on the other side? I can't say that yet, but mm-hmm. I feel like I'll have to self talk my <laughs> myself. Yeah, and I give myself my own advice. Yeah. Well, yeah, and like you said, I have I have author friends who like they've gotten off Goodreads and they're just like they couldn't help themselves like they could read 50 five star reviews and then they'll read one one star and it'll just ruin their day so they're like it was just like a masochistic thing they couldn't do um yeah so when you were in working at uh penguin were you like going to events Like, like what was your like side of the of the world yeah. So, um, so my role there was publicity director. So I had, um, like a role where I had publicists that were reporting into me, but I also mm-hmm. took on books myself and did the publicity myself for books. And so, um, so some of it was just making, I mean, the, the publicists were like incredible and did not need to be like reporting into me, but, but just kind of making sure like I would sort of liaison between, you know, what the publicists were doing with, you know, the publisher and, um, like the other, you know, the, the, the more senior members of the team. But then when I was publicizing the or doing publicity for the books myself, it was exactly that. It was like lots of media relations, mm-hmm. um, lots of events at the times when in-person events existed, oh, okay. um, book like arranging book tours, um, all that kind of stuff. And we had, so at, because I was at Penguin Canada, we had um, like the books that were, um, you know, like native to us, like we were, we, we had the rights to them and we were actually publishing them. And mm-hmm. then we had a, a lot of books, you know, especially from the US that were on distribution with us. And so um, part of my job was to, to be kind of that liaison person between Penguin Canada and Penguin US mm-hmm. um, and all of their imprints to um, help to make sure that, you know, the plans in Canada were being kind of fed into them. So an example was like, um, uh, like Elizabeth Gilbert, like that was, she was at the Chid Books with Viking and also Books with Riverhead later. And, um, you know, she wasn't a Penguin Canada author, but we, mm-hmm. you know, of course, sold lots of her books here. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, I would work with Liz's US publicist to make sure mm-hmm. that, um, you know, her book, that she was having events here and that we had media coverage here and kind of, you know, get our time on her calendar and that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so it was, it was fun. I loved it. I really, yeah. really loved it. It's such a fun, I mean, I feel like publicity, like publicists work, I think so much harder than people give them credit for. Oh, yeah. I feel, you know, like, you know that because yeah. of the business that you're in, of course, mm-hmm. but like, it's, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of managing everybody's expectations. Like, I feel mm-hmm. like that's part of the job is to like, you're managing, you know, the, the publishing side, you're managing yeah. sales, you're managing your author, um, it's a lot of kind of, you know, making sure everyone's yeah. happy, <laughs> which is my, exhausting. I think my favorite version of, 
publicists of book publicists is at because we we do a lot of live events like you said when live events were a thing which I miss so much. Like we have, yeah. um, we have a wonderful library system here, at Cuyahoga County Public Library. Much like you guys in Toronto, you have an amazing library system. We do. Um, our library system does live events when they bring authors. Which again, I know you're very familiar with this. And we do live. Like we would, if it's an author who says, you know, I don't want to just stand up there and read. I want to do it in conversation. You know, we'll 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 do it. And um, we've had a blast doing it but my favorite version of publicists because they don't always come to those but where they always are is when we do like trade shows and conferences like BookCon and you know los angeles festival books and things like that where like i'll be there for a whole weekend so i'll kind of stack like you know 12 interviews and over a weekend and so more often than not i'll see like if it's a penguin publicist they'll have like four of the authors. So I'll just see them a bunch and like, we'll hang out. But like just watching them, like watching like you guys, you know, when you were doing it, like the way that they kind of wrangle like seven authors who are doing book signings and some of them it's for the first time. So they're like running around like chickens with their heads cut off and just like the calm, like, no, you are going here. You are going here, like the scheduling. And it's such an impressive, it's it's amazing. And then like they're doing it in the the booth, handing out books and like explaining it because you have to know, kind of to be a jack of all trades with every single book you're pushing. Cause like you said, it's not just raising the awareness. You're a salesperson. It's all of it. I, is it nice to only have to focus on like one aspect of being the author now? I, I imagine it's weirdly, at least it's, it's a hard thing, but it's at least one hard thing. Yeah. It's so true. You described that um, the life of a publicist perfectly in that description. <laughs> I, the one I always kind of used to think of it as is like, it's like that analogy of like the duck, you know, where like swimming peacefully on the lake, but underneath are just like, you know, the, the like feet are going. And that's definitely how it felt because you, there's a lot of like, you know, stress with your authors who are going through stuff and you have to be the calm one and you have to be mm-hmm. the one who's like, you know, if the car doesn't show up to take you to the next thing, like yeah. you have to say like, no problem and figure it out and mm-hmm. all of that. Right. So yeah, it's, it, it's a lot. Um, but yeah, to, to answer your question, like, is it, it is nice to be on the other side yeah. um, because it's, I mean, it's just so different. It's so different. I, I mean, I have such an appreciation for what they are doing. And so even mm-hmm. when like, every little thing that comes through from your publicist that they yeah. booked for you is like, you just, it's, you just appreciate it so much. Cause mm-hmm. you know that like lots, a lot of work goes into all that, but yeah, it is nice because it's, it lets you, I mean, it's just so different. I mean, you now in this role, you know, you're so focused, you just feel so deep in your book and deep mm. in, in all of it. And so, um, and I think the other difference too, is that like, it's funny being in publicity and publishing or any kind of like marketing role, like it's, you're, it's so social. It's such a social way of being like, you are always on the phone. You are always sending emails. You are, Oh, you know, there's, and then, but when you're writing a book, um, it's so solitary. It's Mm -hmm. such a quiet, you know, internal process. And I didn't talk about the book, you know, to anybody. And so for years, like you are, just living and breathing, you know, this, this book, this, this piece of writing, like this manuscript that you're working on. And so, um, yeah, you just feel so deep and close to it. And then when now, and then now when it comes time to like talking about it, it's, there's, there's a bit of like, um, relief to have that like release of being able to like, you know, talk about the book with other people. Mm-hmm. Um, but it definitely is nice to kind of just like put your head down and worry about one thing. Like all you have to do is talk about the book. It's not, it's okay. You're going to get yeah. through it. It's not that hard. <laughs> so yeah, that, that part is nice. Oh, that's amazing. So uh, when writing the push, what was, uh, what was something that maybe surprised you about the process that going in, you wouldn't have expected? I think how valuable revision is Mm. and I feel like you kind of hear that you know like again like you know taking writing courses and whatever and even just like having that you know bit of glimpse into publishing like you you know that revision is important and people tell you that all the time but I think I wasn't prepared for how much revision I would do and how how valuable it would be how much more it would improve the book Mm -hmm. and how much it would really change the book um, like there's so much, I mean, I, it, you know, we all know that you hear all the time. It's so interesting. And I love talking to writers about this or listening to podcasts with people like you talking <laughs> to writers about this, but like, are you a pantser? Are you a plotter? Mm-hmm. Like all that. It's so interesting to me to hear people's writing process. Um, and when I was kind of doing it myself, I was sort of like, 
there, I think because it was just my first book, I sort of got to the end and I was kind of like, I kind of embarrassed to admit this now, but I was kind of like, oh, I don't, I'm not really going to need to do that much revision. Like I've got this. I've been working on this for years. Like this is, you know, type the end. And I was like, wow, maybe I just not one of those people that needs to revise a lot because I've been working on it. Like I had been working on it for three years. Um, but that turned out to be incredibly wrong, and, like totally oh, naive. Man. And I like revised it for like another, however long, like ridiculous, but <laughs> Um, <laughs> but it was just wishful thinking on my part, but yeah, it's really, it's really the revision. It's all in the revision yeah. is what I would say. And then even again, like, you know, you revise it to a point where, you know, an agent takes it on and then a publisher buys it. And even then it goes through like another yeah. long detailed set of revision. So it, I think that's the thing that surprises me the most is just, you know, how much goes into how much happens between the end of that first draft yeah. and the time shelves yeah I just I love the idea of you being like for your zero draft like I've done it I've done it it. (laughs) I'm the one (laughs) I'm the one person who doesn't need to revise this 300 times (laughs) well so since you asked or since you said it are you a a planner or a pantser let's let's get into Mm. the the good stuff yeah so for this book it very much um for the push very much a pantser like mm-hmm. for sure. I think cause I, I, I honestly just don't think I knew how to plot. Like I didn't know how to like plan it all out. So I was kind of just winging it and mm-hmm. the winging it was kind of satisfying at the time. And I just couldn't, it was kind of like, it let you kind of show up and just write what you felt like writing that day. Mm-hmm. And I think that because I think because I was writing it with such a small baby um, and then like another baby when the second one came along, I think that I think that because of the context of that, it was too hard to plot, try to like plot something out and stick yeah. to it. It was like, I just like, it was enough just to get out of the house for an hour to like a coffee shop to write. And so I would just kind of sit down and just write like whatever I could get out felt valuable at the time. Mm-hmm. And so, and then, and then I think, and then obviously like once you kind of get further along, you have to start kind of paying att- more attention to like what's happening and how much, mm-hmm. you know, how many words you have left to work with and that sort of thing. But, but I would definitely describe it as like a pantser situation for the Mm -hmm. first one. And then, you know, I talked to you about how (laughs) how messy that got, how messy that got, like the revisions and whatever. And it really was a messy process. Although Mm -hmm. like I enjoyed it all. It was fun. I never found it painful. It was just, you know, a lot of work. And so when it came time to writing the second book, which I'm working on now, mm-hmm. um, I was like, okay, I've now I have like a deadline. I've got like time, yeah. like I can't, you know, screw around for like three years trying to write mm-hmm. this book. Like I've got to get it done. And so I, I was very committed to like plotting this one mm-hmm. and making sure I had a plan. And so when I, so I did, I did like a detailed chapter outline and kind of like had the structure figured out and spent a lot of time taking like tons of notes and kind of trying to work it all out into something that I could follow. Mm-hmm. Um, and that did, I think, turn out to be helpful um, in writing this next one because then it was like, you know, COVID and everything else. And so mm-hmm. I was grateful to kind of like have some have something to like keep me on track. Yeah. Um, that said, at the end of that, like I finished my first draft, um, which I was able to write much faster than, than the first one. Um, but it's funny, like now that I look at it and now I'm going through revisions now, like I realize that, you know, the plot is all there and it does work, but what's not there, like I need to go deeper on the character development. Mm-hmm. And so that, so my drafts will really, my next revisions will all really be focused on character development. Whereas I feel like I had the reverse problem the first time. Yeah. So I, it's interesting kind of comparing the two different uh-huh. ways of doing it. Like I really ended up in a different place with each of them. And I don't really know, I, I, I too soon in the second one to really know what I would do for the third one or what, <laughs> what really felt like it worked. But yeah. So I don't know. I guess I'm still figuring that out, but I think it will be a kind of a book by book thing for me. Oh, yeah. And I mean, the the, inter- I, the thing I love about that I think find so fascinating is there's really no right way to do it because, um, you know, we've had authors tell us like um, Harlan Coben told us he started by saying, what if he's like he, that he starts every novel by saying like, what if? And then he answers a question. So like one of his most recent ones was like, what if a man was sitting in the park in Central Park and saw a person playing music and it was his daughter? Like, and then he just goes from there and he just kind of figures it out as he goes. Mm. And um, and he told uh, him he said something like, you know, if if I know what's coming, while I'm writing it, then you as the reader have a, you might know what's coming too. And he's like, so if I can fool myself, then I bet I can fool you as a reader. And I was like, yeah, but you eventually have to, (laughs) Um, but it was like, it was a really interesting. I love that. I love Uh, that. Um, 
or like uh, I can't remember who I think it was Michael Connolly someone else told us like I write myself into a corner that I can't work my way out of and I walk away and I think about it so that I know that I need to think about it for a long, long time. And the same thing, he's like, I plan out how to get in that corner, but I don't plan out how to get out of it. And it's like, I just, I think that that is interesting as you go from book to book, you'll kind of, you know, it's not even grow or mature. It's just realize, like you said, what works for what book and what type of story you're telling. It's, there's no right answer, which is nice. Yeah. It's so interesting. I think too, like the books that have that, I mean, I guess like like the books that really have that heavy kind of like thriller component, Mm -hmm. the people that pants those but like that is really fascinating to me when they when they can write so quickly too like Lisa Jewell I think says that that she I mean she's written so many books and she she I I think I heard her say once that she just like you know figures it out as she goes but to Mm -hmm. me it's like wow like her plots really seem so thought out and so like you know and like people like Sherry Lapina and like other Mm -hmm. it's like yeah it's really interesting to me that that they can just kind of wing it and not have it plotted out because yeah I just feel like also they're on deadlines like these writers are like you know doing like a book a year or something and so like deadlines really matter so to just wing it is just really I mean I guess they're just so experienced and they're so good that they just know how to do it but it's really fascinating I I completely agree like it you get to it seems like not that I know I'm not a you know I don't have 30 best-selling books but like um like Lee Child told us the same thing he's like you get to the point he told me that he you know he writes a book a year and he reads 300 books a year and I was like that's insane and he looked at me and like he wasn't joking at all he's like those are the two things I have to do every year he's like I'm not told I have to do anything else he's like so I read for four hours a day and I write for four hours a day and it's he's like I know if I start a novel at the beginning of January because his books usually come out at the end of November I think he's like I know if I start my, my novel at the beginning of January I need to be done with my zero draft in like the middle of April to do revisions by this, to get it out by then. And I'm just, I was just sitting there staring at him dumbfounded, like, how dare you be this good at this? It's It's incredible. It's really incredible. Like the discipline and just all of it. Yeah. It's amazing. It's really amazing. So towards the end of our podcast, we like to do what we call the nerd nine, just kind of nine lighthearted questions. Not that anything else I've asked was super (laughs) heavy and hard hitting, but um, the first of these is what's the last book you finished reading? Ooh, um, Wintering by Catherine May. Do you know this book? I have heard of it. I haven't read it yet. Okay, it's so good. So it's um, it's basically yeah, it's, it's like memoir, uh, but one of these like beautiful literary kind of memoirs where, mm. um, and she just yeah, she really it's basically wintering is her version of kind of like accepting sadness and kind of moving through sadness or moving through kind of dark periods. And you know, she wrote this obviously you know way before the pandemic, but it's so it's just so bang on for these times we're going through now. I can't recommend it enough. So good. Uh, do you have a favorite place to read? Favorite place to read is an airplane. I love reading on airplanes. Um, So I miss that right now, (laughs) but I feel like I can just really sink into something and just like, I just love like starting a book on an airplane and being like done it by the time the plane lands. That's so satisfying. Yeah. Um, It's interesting. That's actually the my best writing place is on airplanes. Cause like I put it on airplane mode and I'll, all I'm doing is staring at a word doc and I can't access anything else. Like I totally know what you mean. You can get lost. Totally agree. Yeah. It's a great place to get lost in something. And just like, there's something about like the hum of like the background noise, like the white noise of an airplane. It's mm-hmm. just, yeah, that, that whole experience of, I agree writing too, writing and reading on an airplane, the best yeah. place. Ah, I miss going places. I know. Uh, remember? <laughs> <laughs> um, do you remember the book that sort of made you fall in love with reading? Um, yes, it's the Babysitter's Club, mm-hmm. I think, is that just the whole, I mean, this, not one in particular, but the whole series, but just the, just there, I guess, around the age that I was reading them, like kind of being like that preteen kind of age. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there was something about... I mean, just like beyond, you know, the obvious of how fun it was at that age to be reading about these girls who were, you know, had their own club and all the different personalities. But I mean, the series does such a good job at that age of like, you know, defining each of the characters and they Mm -hmm. each have their own story and kind of the and and also the idea of like the collection of the book and this the idea of like reading in a series. Um, So like so captivating at that age when it was like, you know, you could read I would I remember like 
on Fridays, my mom being like, okay, you know, we can go to the library or we can go to the bookstore. And like, you just like knowing the one you wanted to get next and kind of Mm -hmm. like having that. And then the ones you were allowed to buy, like being on your bookshelf and the ones that you, you know, loaned in the library that you loved, like putting on your Christmas list so you could like have it, you know, the next year. I just, that I, I, it's, it's, you know, more than just the book. It was the experience of what that reading was like that I think really just had me like hooked as a reader from then on. Yeah. It's so funny you say that. I had the, what I can only assume is like the boy version of Babysitter's Gloves for Girls. It was like the R.L. Stein Goosebumps books. Yes, like, yes. I loved those too. Yeah, and I think that was like mine and my friends. Same thing. It was like, there was, I don't know, I think 65 of them or something. I mean, those weren't a series, but they did have, no, they would number them. Yes. So exactly what you said, like there was this like point of pride of showing off to your friend a bookshelf. You're like, I have one through 35. Oh, yeah, I know exactly what I you love. I got, that was such a thing then, you know, mm-hmm. and I also feel like why I loved the Earl Stein books. And also, did you ever read Christopher Pike was also oh, like, yes, absolutely. right. Remember? And I feel like what I loved about those ones were like at the time, like they did seem so dark, like they <laughs> seemed like the covers and the, like there was something just so, you yeah. know, like you shouldn't really be reading them. But of course, they were like perfectly age appropriate. But yeah. um, there was also that, that about all of about the R.L. Stein and the Christopher Pike books. Yeah, you, know? you always want to be as a kid, you always want to be doing something you're not supposed to be doing. So that's like exactly a huge, my sister says that about her four kids. She's like, yeah, I always act like they can be reading something like that. I might not want them reading. He's like, she's like, because then they keep reading and it actually it's enticing. Well. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's funny. Um, speaking of the traveling thing that none of us are allowed to do when you're allowed to travel again, what's one place you'd like to go to that you haven't visited yet? Oh, that's a good question because we were just talking about this over dinner with my kids last night. So this is fresh. So this is fresh. We were just brainstorming. Um, So my son really wants, we have family that lives in New Zealand and my son really wants to go to New Zealand. Um, And so I, I, that will not be the first place we go, but it will, I would love to do that someday because I've never been and he seems really keen to go. I think he's mostly excited because I told him how long the flight was and he knows that it's like unlimited iPad on a flight. So he was like, yeah, sign me up. We'll do that. So he's tried to pick like the furthest place you could think of, which is so funny. I was like, I see right through that. I see right through oh, that joy. What an amazing um, reason. <laughs> yeah, I know. So that's there, but there's a lot, I don't know, like, I feel like I've traveled a lot, but there's still like a million places that I haven't been that I'd love to go to. I'd really love to go to Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, as far as, yeah, I think Rome would be up there and, and Greece. That was mm-hmm. the other thing that came up at dinner. Yeah. So one of those places when we're, won't be the, as I said, it won't be right after COVID, but it'll, it's somewhere we're looking forward to once we can do that. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite holiday to celebrate? Mm, you know, I am really not a holiday person. Like, I'm just not a holiday person. I never have been like even but I will say like, since having kids that has really changed <laughs> because mm-hmm. you start to see everything through their eyes. And it's just so different and so much fun. And so I would say probably Halloween, which again, like I did not like love Halloween growing up, but my son is, and my daughter now too, like they're just so, they have like elaborate costume ideas um, that are like way over the top that like you cannot like order from Amazon or like buy it. (laughs) Like they're just like crazy things. Mm -hmm. And so um, we, so every Halloween we've like got really crafty and got the glue gun out and like hand, you know, made their costumes at home. Um, And some have turned out better than others, as you can imagine. (laughs) But, um, but that's like put a whole new kind of been on the fun Mm. of Halloween. So I guess I would pick that. That's amazing. Uh, Are you a coffee person or a tea person? Oh, tea for sure. I don't drink coffee. Um, I I used to drink coffee, like maybe in university, I would have Mm. like a latte or something, but yeah, tea. And I drink a lot of tea. I feel like I can't write, I cannot write unless I have like a hot cup of tea with me. So Mm. yeah. It's so, I feel like authors are so viscerally one or the other. Like it's so rare that we have someone be like, actually both. It is. It's like an author thing. It has to be, you have to have a hot beverage, it seems, and it has to be one or the other. Totally. It's funny because in the, my, in my manuscript, it was, yeah, in the push, um, I had one character who had some, sometimes had a tea and sometimes had a coffee. Mm-hmm. I don't know how I let that happen because you're right, <laughs> but it did. And my editor was like, uh, 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 pick one. Nobody one drinks both. <laughs> yeah. oh, that's so funny. Um, yeah. cats or dogs? Oh, um, Oh, that's a hard one. Why are you making me pick between those? Well, so the reason I'm making you pick, so it's an internal struggle on the podcast. My co-host Jill has four cats and I have right. two dogs, one of whom is sleeping behind me at the moment. Um, so it's just our eternal thing. We've never gotten more like reader responses. And when we talk about cats or dogs, it's, it's hilarious. So people seem so to funny. love this. 
I, that's really funny. I feel like I would, I used to be a cat. I feel like growing up, I was a cat person. I had like a cat named Mittens and I feel like, I feel like I was very into cats when I was little, but now I feel like it's probably shifting to dogs now that I'm older because I, yeah, I just feel like, I don't know. I feel, I feel like if we were to get one or the other right now with kids, it would probably be a dog. Yeah. Absolutely. But that's not going to happen anytime soon. But if it did. <laughs> Do you have a favorite food? Um, a favorite food, I would say probably anything Italian, mm-hmm. I would probably say like a really good pasta, like a really good simple pasta. Yeah. All right. Last one of these. If you could have dinner with one person alive or dead, who would you pick? <gasps> I know, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's such a good question. I feel, I mean, I feel like you could ask me this question and it, my, my answer would like change every mm-hmm. day. I feel like right now I would say maybe Alice Monroe. Ooh, that's a good one. I like that. Alice Monroe, I think. Nice. Um, Okay, last question for you. What do you hope readers take away from reading The Push? Hmm. I hope that readers take away that we would be, we will do women a service if we can make more space for conversations about the challenges of motherhood, about the times when motherhood does not turn out to be anything like we expect it to. Um, It's very difficult right now, I think, for a lot of women to talk about that or to like open up and kind of share the parts of it that are challenging because there's so much judgment attached to motherhood. Mm. Um, And we, there's such, you know, it's so ingrained in us to have a certain narrative around what motherhood should be like, you know, what we can say about it, what we should say about our kids and what that experience is like, Mm -hmm. you know, even the language we can use around it. And I think that can be very isolating and I think it can really, um, you know, be, be very difficult for women. And so I think, yeah, I hope what we take away from it is that, you know, creating space to have those more challenging conversations is a service to women. That is absolutely perfect. Well, I, I have been reading the book. It's 2020 when we are talking, but this will come out in 2021. But I already think this will be one of my best books of the year. It's so wonderful. Thank you, Adam. That's so nice. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for joining me today. This has been great. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode from Overdrive.com, and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Adam Sokol and Jill Grunewald and presented by Overdrive. For more information, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.